I think it's profoundly unhelpful. I think that he is carrying water for Vladimir Putin. He is popularizing and normalizing the Russian position. Being a useful idiot for a dictator who's not even winning is just not a good look. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, October 18th, and today Julia Yaffe is here to talk about Elon Musk floating a peace settlement for Russia and Ukraine on Twitter, a proposal that seems like it came straight from Vladimir Putin's desk in the Kremlin. It sure sounds like Musk is carrying water for Putin, and the international community isn't happy about it. Julia explains why. And later on, Bill Cohan is here to talk about the proposed merger between supermarket giants Albertsons and Kroger, and why regulators probably won't let it happen. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode, Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe, who is here to deliver her expertise on the war between Russia and Ukraine. As always, not that she can't talk about other things, but she's really good at this. This is on brand for you. This is on brand for Puck. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Julie, I want to ask you about Elon Musk, of all people, is sort of acting as a bit of a proxy for Vladimir Putin, or at least a megaphone for a potential agreement peace idea. Or a water carrier, or a useful idiot, or, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Pick your term. Fair enough. So Elon tweeted, I think a couple weeks ago at this point, Ukraine, Russia, peace, colon, uh, because he has an answer for everything. He can create the hyperloop. He can save the kids from the cave and the water. He can, you know, go to the moon. Um, the first point, redo elections of annexed regions under UN supervision. Russia leaves if that is the will of the people. Obviously, the regions he's talking about, in the East, I had sort of sham elections and raised their hand saying, we are with you, uh, Vladimir Putin, and those were not uh, fair and free elections. Uh, Two, Crimea formally part of Russia, as it has been since 1783, until Khrushchev's mistake. Okay, man. Water supply to Crimea assured, Ukraine remains neutral. So this is a four-point peace plan tweeted out by Elon Musk, and then he put a poll on it that has two million votes. Well, then you have it, you know, let's just, it's a Twitter poll. It's binding. There you go. The science is, <laughs> is wonderful, immaculate. Like, it's this sound. Is, it's very sound here, the methodology. Um, No, but the Twitter poll at least says no by a 60-40 margin. I say all this, I'm reading this tweet. We're talking about Elon Musk, not with Bill Cohan, but with you for a reason, which is why is Elon Musk tweeting about this? And is he talking to Vladimir Putin? And, and like sort of tweeting this out so the West pays attention to this idea, maybe like a soft launch for a settlement idea? It's funny you should ask. <laughs> uh, so last week we found out through Ian Bremmer, who is the founder and head of 
this thing called the Eurasia Group, which is this fancy risk consultancy that helps governments and businesses kind of assess their risk uh, going into business in a certain country, especially in uh, emerging markets, and gives them the lay of the land and and what's happening and what they think is going to happen. And Ian sends out a weekly email to his kind of core client base. Last week, I believe on Monday, he sent out a long email saying that a couple weeks ago, he had talked to Elon Musk and Elon told him that before tweeting this out, he had spoken directly to Putin and that these were Putin's red lines. Ian had kind of kept this to himself, but then given the the tweeting that happened and the fact that these kinds of ideas were starting to gain ground in certain corners of the American political spectrum. I don't know if that metaphor makes sense. He wanted to kind of share this two-week-old anecdote, now three-week-old anecdote, that this basically came directly from Vladimir Putin. This was broke by Vice News, I think. I managed to get a hold of the actual memo afterwards. In it, he basically says, yeah, he spoke directly to Vladimir Putin before tweeting this out. Musk comes along and says, no, I didn't speak directly to the Kremlin, kind of seemingly giving himself room to maneuver. I spoke to Ian privately. He didn't want to go on the record, but he basically stood by his reporting. And I think, look, like Ian's a nice guy. He can be a bit of a blowhard, but he does have a business, a very big and very lucrative business that depends on his reputation. And I just fundamentally don't believe that he would make something like this up and then put his name on it and then send it to his clients who are uh, paying him a lot of money for his insight. You know, this is not is not a substack. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, he's not just a guy on Twitter. I mean, I think people think of him as this like, I mean, he is a guy on Twitter. I know that. But I'm saying if you're not (laughs) subscribed to his newsletter, you just think he's like this geopolitical savant on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, but he has a whole staff, right? He has a whole staff in many different cities. It is a big company. They are a real institution and their name really means something and carries weight in the world of foreign policy and international business. The other question is whether Elon Musk was just making shit up while speaking to Ian Bremmer. So I think Elon Musk actually validated the idea that Elon Musk has talked to Putin (laughs) Uh, just yesterday. Elon tweeted about Russia and Ukraine, and it sure sounds like Putin is his ghostwriter when he says this. This is what Elon Musk tweeted. (laughs) His Cyrano. (laughs) Literally. This sounds like it would literally be a speech Putin would give, but in English. If Russia is faced with the choice of losing Crimea or using battlefield nukes, they will choose the latter. We've already sanctioned and cut off Russia in every possible way. So what more do they have left to lose? If we nuke Russia back, they will nuke us, and then we have World War III. So that's what Elon Musk tweeted yesterday. And then he goes on to say, whether one likes it or not, Crimea is absolutely seen as a core part of Russia by Russia. Duh. Crimea is also of critical national security importance to Russia, as is their southern naval base. From their standpoint, losing Crimea is like USA losing Hawaii and Pearl Harbor. So the second entry there feels a lot like a Wikipedia read of Crimea. <laughs> Let me start with this. Both this and the original 
tweet storm, yes, sound like they came from the brain of Vladimir Putin. Like he mentioned 1783, like, oh yeah, sure, Elon, you know about that. And you know about Khrushchev's quote unquote mistake, which in fact was not a mistake because if you look at a map, Elon, you can see that Crimea is attached by land. It's a peninsula. It has one point of land attachment and it is in fact to the once was the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, not the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic. That's one thing. Second of all, he's like, let's just ask the people who live there. Well, most of the people who live there have left in the last eight years because of all the fighting. And the people who stayed either support what's happening or are too poor to leave. And so it would not mean much to ask them. This happens a lot everywhere, but especially in the U.S., people who make a lot of money in business who become these successful tycoons, they suddenly think like, well, if I made a lot of money doing X, then I must be a genius at everything. I'm surrounded by people who tell me I'm a genius. So let me just try my hand at solving other complex issues. Like I got a rocket into space. I made an electric car. Sure. These are very difficult problems, but like not all difficult problems are the same and not all geniuses are the same. And this is how we get fuckers like Elon Musk and Henry Ford. I've been thinking a lot recently about how similar the two are, how both are these industrial titans associated with a certain iconic car who made their fortune on that, then decided to try their hand at politics, who started dabbling in media. You know, Henry Ford bought a newspaper just so that he could print these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and tirades. And he started playing footsie with this European strongman, land-grabbing strongman of the day, Adolf Hitler. And you're seeing something very similar with Elon, who's trying to buy Twitter so that he can shake up the discourse and get his ideas, his ideas of what a media discourse should look like across. He's playing footsie with the land-grabbing fascist leader of Europe of the day, Vladimir Putin. Hey, I want to ask you, what does like foreign policy establishment in the West, the US, the UK, NATO, what do they think about Elon Musk, like tweeting about all the stuff where they just like, shut up, man. You know, as much as you want to dismiss Elon Musk, like it does feel like this is part of the information warfare going on. Absolutely. And it's influencing public opinion. I think it's profoundly unhelpful. I think that he is carrying water for Vladimir Putin. He is popularizing and normalizing the Russian position, which should not be normalized. He's mainstreaming it and helping it gain acceptance. And that is very, very bad because it is theft and murder and imperialism and colonialism. And these are all things that we should all reject. For there to be any kind of peace deal, it has to be a just one. And everything that Elon Musk has offered up, which is just regurgitated garbage from the Kremlin, is not just. Being a useful idiot for a dictator who's not even winning is just not a good look. You were saying like you get to the certain level in business, in the private sector, and you think you can do anything. You can like run for political office. Totally. You can reach over here and like solve the energy crisis. You can buy a newspaper and run a newspaper, buy a social totally. media site, whatever. There's also this element just of like, I like being able to have my texts and phone calls returned by powerful people. And other famous oh, people, yeah. especially if you're 100%. just like, like, you know, you're used to be a nerd and you're insecure and then you become 
famous and powerful and well-connected and everyone wants to text you and you get off on the fact that like you can text with Gail King and you can talk to the Kremlin and you can talk over here to like totally someone from another tech platform. And it's just like, at some point it's like, are you being useful or are you just showing off that you can talk to Kanye West? Right. Vladimir Putin, who was trained to deal with human beings in the KGB and how to manipulate their egos to his end, knows that very well. The hubris of somebody who is very smart, but maybe isn't very socially or emotionally smart, doesn't realize the extent to which he's being manipulated. He thinks it's a cool flex that Vladimir Putin is uh, trusting him with his big ideas, but really he's just being totally manipulated and being used in an informational war game. And he just looks like an idiot. Julia, I don't know if we came on today intending to talk about Elon Musk, but we did. I think it uh, brought some energy and some heat out of you. You know what? It's (laughs) renewable. (laughs) I know it is. (laughs) All right, Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Teddy Schleifer speaks to Bill Cohan about Albertsons and Kroger. Teddy Schleifer here today. We're back with Bill Cohane, and we are here today to talk about M&A and what deals may not get done. Bill, thanks for coming by. Teddy, great to be here. You have come out over the weekend uh, arguing that Kroger, which is the supermarket giant, should not be able to acquire its rival Albertsons, or at least raising questions about whether or not it should be allowed. Kroger is trying to buy its chief rival for $25 billion. This is at a time when the Biden White House and, and frankly, lots of, of the left are, are hoping for an entirely new approach to antitrust. Typically, that conversation is dominated by conversations about what tech companies acquire, but, you know, $25 billion acquisition is nothing to sneeze at. Can you give me like the, the quick thumbnail sketch here of why, if you were Lena Khan, the chair of the FTC, why, if you were Lena Khan, you would at least be questioning the Kroger acquisition of Albertsons? Well, look, I mean, uh, there's no question that the Biden administration has made clear that they're taking a different approach on mergers of all kinds. You know, they've actually gone to trial, of course, trying to block uh, Penguin Random House's, uh, my publisher's acquisition of Simon & Schuster from CBS, which is now like pending for two years, and that's a $2 billion uh, merger, Teddy. So they have also uh, gone after small acquisitions that, you know, Amazon uh, is doing, I think, of of Roomba, of all things, the vacuum cleaner company. It's clear that between Lena Khan and the Justice Department that there's kind of a, a new sheriff in town. Now they haven't had any victories uh we're waiting on the you know we're awaiting i guess the judge's ruling in the penguin random house simon schuster deal but i mean they've made no secret that uh after you know frankly decades of rather lax antitrust enforcement that maybe they're going to try something else so you know along comes this 25 billion dollar attempt by Kroger to buy Albertsons, that's the number one and number two uh, supermarket chains at a time of 
rising food prices and higher inflation, etc. I mean, it just seems so obvious that this is clear and present test to whatever it is that the Justice Department and Lena Khan, uh, you know, are going to do. To you, it's primarily about how this squares with kind of the rhetoric and sort of the approach to Lena Khan. It's, it's, to you, it's primarily about like ideological consistency. Exactly. It's interesting. The lawyers for these companies are already anticipating trouble on this front. So they've They've made a number of arguments uh, already. Number one, we'll sell overlapping stores wherever they overlap. The way to look at this is that we're facing serious competition from Amazon and Walmart to sell groceries, which is partially true, but come on, they're relatively small players in this field. So they, they know that they're testing the limits but when it comes to Albertsons, they probably felt they had little choice. They'd, they'd hired Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse earlier in the year to try to sell the company. It's been more or less owned by Cerberus, a hedge fund, since, since 2006. That's 16 years of ownership, more or less. Um, time to go. Time for liquidity. So they got to test it. So, yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, Bill, to make the, the best argument for why something like this should be allowed. I can't. There's no argument for why it should be allowed, especially given the intellectual arguments that they've made to try to block the other deals in the pipeline. There's no way to defend this other than let's give it a shot. Other than, you know, sort of the the burden being on the regulator to show why it shouldn't be allowed, right? Just that, you know, in in capitalism and free markets, M&A is allowed unless there's some, you know, the the bar to be met is by Lena Khan. Right. Or, or uh, you know, the Justice Department in some lawsuit uh, that's brought, just like in uh, uh, Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster. I mean, we, we literally, I mean, don't know the outcome of that. The Justice Department made, I think, a silly legal argument. But nevertheless, you know, five publishers going down to four seems like a concentration of power that should be blocked. Uh theoretically speaking and intellectually speaking and probably legally speaking, same argument applies even more so in a merger that's 12 times the size uh, in the supermarket uh, industry. Does the industry uh, in question matter? Does the fact that these are supermarkets as opposed to, to book publishers or as opposed to tech companies or as opposed to, you know, oil companies, how does the industry in question not necessarily shape what? should be regulated and what mergers shouldn't be allowed, but like in reality, what actually happens? Look, each industry is defined differently and has different characteristics and different competitive natures. So, you know, each industry has to be taken, you know, on its own. But, you know, in late stage capitalism uh, these days, which is where we're clearly at, there's already a lot of concentration across a variety of industries. If they're going to try to block uh, Amazon's uh, uh, acquisition of Roomba, which, you know, seems to me to be a horizontal merger, just as the Trump administration tried unsuccessfully to block, you know, AT&T's acquisition of Time Warner, which failed. It's clear that at least in the supermarket industry, this is, this is, a, you know, I mean, I, I think they obviously did it knowing that they were going to face right uh, opposition. And it's already right. forming, but, you know, politicians are already blithering about it. Right, right. I was going to ask, but where does, where does this end from, from where you said? I mean, right now we're in the stage of politicians blithering about it, but do you see the FTC trying to block this? I would be shocked if they didn't try to do something. I mean, uh, 
maybe these divestitures would be sufficient. Maybe the mm. Walmart, Amazon argument is a good one. They're well advised, uh, you know, uh, lawyers getting $2,000 an hour uh, that specialize in this. And I'm sure they have some thoughts about why this will all work out just fine. But uh, given that it's food and that's basically a, a basic human need and that this kind of concentration might lead to a higher prices uh, in an environment where food prices are already going up. You know, it's just a low-hanging fruit for politicians. All right, Bill, take it easy. Thank you, Teddy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.